Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, uh, we were due for a very bad week of football. We were blessed, we were graced, we were gifted with six straight weeks of amazing NFL football, and then we got week seven. Uh, All the primetime games were slot fests. Uh, It started with uh, Case Keenum versus the corpse of Teddy Bridgewater and only went downhill from there. The average margin of victory on Sunday was almost 21 points. It was blowout after blowout. And then as the cherry on top, we got uh, whatever that game was between Indy and San Francisco, where the Colts somehow put up 30 points despite Carson Wentz almost throwing five picks and still somehow playing well, but also not playing well. And then we had the Monday night game with the Saints somehow surviving the Geno Smith-led Seahawks, who just can't buy a win right now. Yeah, not a great week of football. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. There were some teams that I think had a pretty good week of football. We'll get to them. If you're a Bengals fan, you're feeling pretty good. So to celebrate the week that was, and to help me forget it, I brought uh, probably the strongest bourbon in my arsenal. This is the Woodenville Cask Strength at 117 proof. So uh, I apologize if I don't make it through the entirety of this podcast uh, without passing out. And legally, I cannot be held liable for my actions from this point forward. So that's where I'm at, EJ. How are you doing? And what are you drinking? Uh, that's impressive. I I like the legality thing. That's a cool disclaimer. I didn't know that I could do that, but uh, maybe I will. No, bourbon was definitely necessary this week, and I have the uh, regular Woodenville bourbon, not the cask strength, but um, lovely stuff. Oh, wow. None, we we did not plan that. No, we, we did not. Uh, I that? didn't even have it when you were here. Um, my my lovely wife came back from the store. Uh, we recently celebrated an anniversary, and she was like, guess what? And I was like, that is an excellent anniversary gift. Uh, so that is my shot of the week. But um, I found these, which are a lot of fun. Um, so Stella Artois, most people know Stella. They're making a midnight now, which is a black lager. I didn't even hmm. know these things existed, and they are delicious. Um, I don't know that I've ever had uh, either. They can be called black lagers, black ales. They used to be called black IPAs, which was a misnomer. Um, kind of a subgenre of beer uh, that that not a lot of places make, and when I find one, I almost always try it. It's one of my favorite 
um, kind of under the radar styles and the Stella one is excellent. So if you tend to like that style, um, check it out. Other than that, yeah, the football was pretty much like we thought it might be. We even said in our games to watch, mm, feel like this might be the first week where we don't have a ton of great games. Um, turned out that that was the case, right? This was the week of the mismatches. We'd had uh, a record number of overtime games, uh, we'd had, uh, I would say, a record number of good primetime games, Sunday night, Monday night, and Thursday night games uh, up to this point in the season. And it felt like you were just, if you're a better, right, you're just betting for that streak to end because you're like, it can't continue. We can't keep getting barn burners every Sunday, Monday, and Thursday night. And we didn't. Like, the Monday night game pretty much sealed that one. Um but, you know, still interesting. We got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Um, you know, one of my favorite times of week. I get to sit down, talk football with you, have a drink, and, uh, you know, it's bootleg. Welcome back. Before we get up to uh, three up number one, I want to thank you to Marcus, Oscar, Jasper, and IK, who joined Patreon this week to support the show. We appreciate you guys believing in us and our work. Uh, remember, as new patrons, if you're listening to this, you get a discount on the store. So if you're looking to pick up some uh, bootleg swag and you just joined the Patreon, remember to use that benefit. Uh, with that being said, let's get up to three up number one, which is the Bengals asserting themselves at the top of the AFC North. I thought this was going to be a competitive game. I did not expect them to completely blow the doors off the Ravens. I, I didn't expect Jamar Chase, as good as he is, to completely annihilate that secondary, which on paper, even though they've had some injuries, I still think is a pretty good secondary. I mean, Joe Mixon ran over him. Samaj P. Ryan ripped off a long run. You got Jackson Carmen demolishing people at the point of attack. Joe Burrow was an assassin. Like that that offense, you know, even despite the fact that T. Higgins has kind of struggled in the first half of the season and Tyler Boyd, he's been kind of up and down. Like, the fact that they've got Burrow and Chase and Uzama making plays and the running backs and the offensive line is improving and the defense is like a top 10 to 12 unit at worst, like, this is a legit team. And it's not even just like a, oh, it's it's a cute, you know, 4-2, and 5-2, and two, whatever they are right now. Like, no, they are legit. And I think that... It's 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 not just to oh they're pushing for a wild card now. I think they're pushing for division title home playoff game now. They have a legitimate shot at that. Yeah, they're winding up, not down too. So with all the talent you just mentioned, uh, I think it was Ross Tucker put out a tweet this week after the Bengals game, and he said, "Who over the next three years as a young offensive core would you take over the Bengals?" Now that's Burrow, Chase, Higgins, Azama, and Mixon. If we're not talking, if we're talking about the, I hate the term skill position. We got to come up with something better because offensive line players are extremely skilled, but the guys that touch the ball positions, let's put it that way. Um, And there's not many units in the NFL. If you're looking at youth uh, value right now, in terms of they haven't had to pay Burrow yet, um, there are very few units that can match them straight up talent for talent. But if you talk about talent and a core to build around with a low cost, I don't think there's anybody in the NFL that matches them because it's it's not a triplets thing. It's a quintuplets thing. We're five deep here, right? We have two wide receivers, a really good back, an excellent quarterback, and Uzama, who's playing at a top tight end level, even though he isn't getting that billing. That's a that's a really formidable unit. And then you talked about the defense, right? They had a great free agent pickup in Shadobi Awuzie. 
their line is playing better, I think, than it has in a few years, their defensive line. So you got a team here that's balanced and they're not they're not stumbling into wins. They look like they're just hitting their stride. And we both expected this game to be competitive. It was number one on our watch list last week, and they didn't make it competitive. Like, they ended the competitive part real quick. They put their foot on the Ravens' neck and stomped out of there with a win, and that's a statement victory for a franchise that really has needed to turn it around. And this feels like that, as we look back, this might be the start of that. Also, uh, speaking of defense and young pieces... We have got to give some credit to Logan Wilson. You know, we, we've been trying to champion unheralded players throughout this season on, on the Bootleg Football Podcast. And Logan Wilson, we've been talking up since before he was drafted. If I recall correctly, he was one of our 10 gems of that draft, was he, he not? He was one of my five gems in our 10 gems. I loved Logan Wilson coming out. And he did not have a great rookie year. I was a little bit underwhelmed by what he did but you know none of their linebacking talent had a great rookie year but this year yeah he's come on yeah he was uh an unheralded linebacker out of wyoming if memory serves and uh you know when you and i watched him we had pretty much the same report of okay he's not the biggest dude and in terms of long speed he's not the fastest dude but in terms of like a 10 to 15 yard box with how quick he was how fluid he was how instinctive he was like if you just need a guy to seek and destroy from numbers to numbers like that was the kind of linebacker he was and he's just been racking up tackles this year making plays in the backfield he's been phenomenal one of their best defensive players overall and a big reason why uh they've been a very good defense this year so the Bengals it's interesting because of how the organization is structured in that they don't spend a lot of money. The Bengals are usually only good when they start hitting on draft picks. And they've been hitting on a lot of draft picks lately. They hit on number one with Joe Burrow. They got the quarterback correct. You know, you have Jamar Chase, who is kind of an easy pick, but they did it. They made the correct pick. Um, and then you're hitting on guys, you know, like Logan Wilson and you're, you know, having good pickups like P. Ryan and, you know, you're you're nailing a second round pick in Jackson Carmen, who's really come on at guard, even though everybody was screaming tackle, 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 have to get a left tackle. They're like, no, our problem was guard. We're taking a guard and they took a guard and he's played well. So the Bengals, at least historically, you look at the last 15 to 20 years, going back to like the beginning of the Marvin Lewis era, their peaks are when they draft well and the talent is cheap. And that's what they're in right now. They're in one of those draft peaks. And if they can keep that going and continuously restock the cupboard, because Lord knows they're not going to pay for guys. As long as you have Joe Burrow healthy and you keep supplying him with good, cheap draft picks, they're not going away. Like this, this could be a very successful franchise for a very, very long time. Yeah, it feels like one of those teams that's going to win a bunch this year, have a bunch of people change their minds about the Bengals, right? What the Bengals are, how competitive they are, whether or not they're an easy out. I think they sort of passed easy out status uh, late last year. They were not a fun team to play. Um, you know, after Burrow's injury, it was a little bit different. Uh, but you could still see the rest of some of those pieces developing. And it's like, well, again, like you said, if they have another good draft, they definitely have to fix the O-line. They definitely need one more receiver. Well, 
I wouldn't say they exactly fixed their O-line, but they, they put some resources towards it. So far, it looks like it's working out. They definitely fixed the other receiver problem. Um, you know, Burrow has come back and is, I'd say, playing very strong football the way we both expected him to. And they've got some pieces on defense, both that they've drafted and that they picked up in free agency. And it feels like they could keep winning this year, change some minds, go out, have another decent couple of free agency ads they don't even need to make it four or five hits right and then one more decent draft class and they could be a powerhouse team next year which when you drafted burrow you know two years ago that was the thing was look we're gonna we need the quarterback piece we need some pieces around him it's not gonna be all the year we draft him it's not even gonna be all next year it's really about that season after that where we want to have all the cheap talent aligned. We want to have Burrow with a couple seasons under his belt, some decent protection, and a ton of weapons. It kind of feels like they're almost already there with just a couple more pieces. They People always say one player away, right? They're not one player away, but they're maybe three or four players away, which they could absolutely do in a combination of free agency in the draft next year. And then it's it's going to be watch out for Cincinnati if that happens. On the other side of the ball, um, this is the first time that I, I really felt like another team just handed Baltimore their own ass. And Baltimore has done that multiple times this season where they've been the bully, you know, shoving somebody's face in the dirt. They got completely outmuscled at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. Their defensive line got handled. Their offensive line got handled. And that usually doesn't happen to Baltimore, but I do think that some injuries are kind of starting to add up for them. You know, Ronnie Stanley's out for the year. He elected to have, I think it was ankle surgery, if I remember correctly. Correct. You know, he had suffered a setback, so he's like, I, I can't. And which is totally understandable. I'd rather he be healthy and, you know, come back strong for, for 2022. But he was their best offensive lineman. And they're not getting him back this year. We thought maybe he, maybe he could, but they're not. And the rest of the offensive line just hasn't really stepped up. And I think a big reason why Lamar leads them in rushing by a lot is because he's kind of the only guy that can make do with no offensive line and still produce. But Devonta Freeman, he's getting three and a half yards a carry. Le'Veon Bell, one yard a carry. Like these old retread running backs... If the holes aren't there, they're not going to create like they did in their prime. They're not going to create something out of nothing like Lamar. And uh, I think the running back injuries have really added up for them. So they, they don't have any dynamic backs in the backfield. And the offensive line injuries have added up for them. So they're just not really generating movement up front. And it's it's kind of interesting in the NFL how you need two things to really succeed. And it's quarterback and offensive line. Some teams only have one. Very few teams have both. It kind of feels like Baltimore only has one right now. And I feel like that might limit them in terms of how far they can go this year. Yeah, I would say it's going to come at the end in terms of how far they can push it in the playoffs. Right now, Lamar is playing out of his mind. Let's be 100% clear about that. He is playing the best football he has ever played in his life. And he has played some amazing football. We're talking about an MVP, right? 
this guy's played some amazing football. He is operating at a higher level right now than he's ever operated. And he has to. That's the problem, right? Is the receiving core is coming back. Like they just got Bateman uh, back. He's still got Andrews. Hollywood is really much better as a number two, not being pressed into that number one role um, as a complimentary piece. So, you know, the receiving pieces are there and he's really hitting those intermediate crossing routes, which he did at Louisville and he's doing again. And that's where they're doing damage. Those man intermediate crossing routes is where he's really crushing people. And of course he can always take off, change a game, you know, 45, 50 yards on a scramble, which very few quarterbacks in the league can do. Lots of people can hurt you for 15 or 20 and pick up the first down. Lamar can take it all the way and score. So that's a thing. But Again, it's because he has to right now. He cannot hand it off 20 and 25 times a game to a running back and expect them behind what's left of the line to control the game. And that's kind of Greg Roman's deal, right? He That is his first foot forward. It's not his only strength. He can he can adapt. But without that, it's, it's kind of like fighting with one arm tied behind your back. So Lamar's having to take up the slack. He's doing it right now, but we've seen teams that are that dependent on one player's skill set and they don't tend to make it all the way through the tournament. Somebody exposes them, right? Somebody limits them and ties the other hand behind their back and then they're out of options. So it's going to be a fascinating team to watch, but the the line dominance that you brought up in the beginning is, is not something you see happen to Harbaugh's teams very often. Like they do not get beat in the trenches on both sides of the ball, hardly ever. And Cincinnati did it handily, like not a little bit, like not one in the end after some attrition. They, again, put their foot down and just stomped them. And that's rare. So good job by Cincinnati. Statement win in that division really sets them up for a different kind of outlook for the rest of the season, I think. Three up number two uh, was one of the only other entertaining games of the weekend. Uh, Unless, of I don't course, even you call were <laughs> a fan of one of those teams that was putting the hammer That's down. True. Then, then you had a great weekend. If you're a Bengals fan or a Bucks fan, your weekend was A-OK. <laughs> but for us, us neutral fans, uh-uh. for us neutral fans, uh, this, this Falcons-Dolphins game was, was one of the more entertaining things to watch that wasn't a complete dumpster fire. Uh, you know, Falcons jumped out to a lead. They were kind of kicking the crap out of them. It, it almost joined uh, the league of the other blowouts, but Tua mounted kind of a furious comeback late and kind of overcame that really, uh, really weird interception. It kind of looked weirder in the broadcast angle than maybe it actually was, because at least to me, it kind of looked like, if I remember correctly, it was Gaskin. He saw Gaskin, and then Gaskin kind of moved like as he released the ball, and it went right to the... So it looked really weird on the broadcast angle. You watch in the All-22, and it's a little bit more understandable. But even then, it's still a pretty bad pick. But Tua kind of overcame that, mounted a comeback, brought him back within two points. But uh, the Falcons survived the Dolphins, and uh, actually a very, very entertaining game. Partly because I think finally... We're seeing the Falcons use Kyle Pitts the way that we really wanted him to be used. He had a season low in terms of taking snaps from the inline position, and they used him more in the slot and out wide. And when you look at the route chart, just for comparison, from week seven, and then you look at the route chart from week two, like it looks totally different. They're using him much more 
vertically now than they did earlier in the year. And we've been begging for that all season long. Like, please, you have this tight end that could be a legitimate deep threat. Use him like that. And they finally have, and he just absolutely went off. Uh, seven catches, a buck 63, 23 yards a catch, which for a tight end, for seven catches, just unless your name's Darren Waller or George Kittle or Travis Kelsey, you're not used to seeing that number next to a tight end's name. He's been everything that we hoped he would be and more. And the fact that he's on pace for, what, 12, 1,300 yards, and they, they didn't even start using him right until like two weeks ago is is just a testament to how incredible he is. So just a, a really fun, entertaining, quasi-back-and-forth game. You know, some rookies got showcased. We saw some fighting Tua. Matt Ryan's playing well. Uh, just thoroughly entertaining. What would you think of it? Yeah, for me, it's it's kind of the Kyle Pitts show. There's a lot more going on, certainly on the Dolphins side, obviously. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of talk about Tua, right? Uh, Tua's name came up as the hot topic over the week with, is you know, is he going to get traded? Is it a three-way trade? Is it part of, you know, moving Deshaun Watson? Like, is he going to go to the, lots of places came up, the Broncos, the Washington football team. Like, you know, there's a lot of Tua speculation. Um, so rightfully so, stoked the fires before the trade deadline. And, and it's, that's a tough spot to be as an athlete, right? You're the, you're the chosen one. You're the leader of the franchise. They moved a very popular veteran out of the starting lineup and then out of the building, clearing the way for you. There've been questions about whether you're the guy. And it was good to see him get down, have a play that, you know, could take the wind out of your sails as a player, but he's incredibly resilient. He's seen a lot of football, uh, you know, not necessarily at the pro level, but at other levels uh, and at very high levels. And, you know, not terribly surprising, but pretty cool to see him come and lead the team back and, and battle back against a team that is figuring out how to do what it needs to do under a new head coach. And boy, Pitts is, Pitts is just different. Like you posted the tweet that he hasn't dropped a pass in what, two years, right? Week 10 of 2019 was the last time he dropped a pass. Right. So he hasn't dropped a pass in two years. We all know that the physical attributes are special, rare. I don't want to say unique, but darn close. Uh, guys just aren't that tall with that long of arms with that many skills. And we've said, you could just slide him out and play him at the extra receiver. I don't care what you call him. Um, when we had our conversation with Eric Galco, he asked us, do you think he cost himself money by going out as a tight end instead of a wide receiver? And the, the answer is absolutely he did because the wide receiver salary range is a lot higher than the tight end salary range. And he he's showing. They lined him up wide outside a bunch in this game he just won one-on-one versus corners outside because he's just too big for them matt ryan threw up a couple balls when he was not open at all he was flat out covered he just jumped up and grabbed it because he's you know six six and has super long arms and great hands and that's the kind of player he is you can just huck it up and it's again the classic old 50 50 ball nah it's kind of like a 90 10 ball with pits he's he's likely to come down with that thing so I'm happy to see him getting showcased, as are you. The numbers are going to be ridiculous from here on out. They're just going to use him as a weapon. They're going to have him inside. They're going to have him in the slot. They're going to have him outside. And that's where he's really going to excel because you can put him on the best matchup. And he's going to win anywhere if you try and put a... There's just not that many players, you know, short of like Jalen Ramsey, maybe. But there's not a ton of guys floating around the league with that size 
toughness skill set who are going to be able to even kind of match up to him. You put him on a nickel corner, most yeah. <laughs> nickel corners in the league, like You're good done. luck. You put him on a linebacker. Again, most linebackers in the league, there's a couple, maybe three, you know, I, like Isaiah Simmons is a pretty good matchup weapon for a guy like Kyle Pitts. There's not a lot of Isaiah Simmons is floating around. Um, you know, there's maybe five, six guys in the league that can handle him as a linebacker. Uh, and then most outside corners, right? He's either going to outrun them, outjump them, or outpower them, depending on what their weakest skill set is. So there's just not a lot of ways to win against him. And I think Atlanta's figuring that out. Hey, no matter where we put him, no matter what we throw to him, he's going to win. So let's just keep throwing to him. It's like, yes, let's just do that. <laughs> so um, pretty cool to see him break out. But yeah, an entertaining game in a in a weekend where there were a lot of games that got unentertaining pretty quick, unless again, you were a fan of the victor and then it was just a lap. It was a good time. One, one more note I want to bring up about this game. Uh, Corderell Patterson is among <laughs> the league leaders in yards from scrimmage. And if you're a longtime bootleg listener, I have been championing the Corderell Patterson is a hall of fame fan club for a long time. When you look at his resume, the All-Pros, the All-Decade team, the Super Bowl rings, everything like that, to see him now have a season, because again, the knock was like, well, he was never a legitimate weapon. He was a special teams guy. Seeing him now be one of the only guys with you know, over 230, 240 yards rushing and receiving in the entire league... You know, that's like Alvin Kamara, that's DeAndre Swift, where it's like, are they a running back? Are they a receiver? Who cares? They're a weapon. He's way up there in the yards from scrimmage ranks, and I don't see any sign of him slowing down. He's been, at least from a fantasy football perspective, this year on a points-per-game basis, he's like RB5, which is insane. He is having the season of dreams for a 30-year-old uh Again, I don't even know what position I want to call him, but a 30-year-old weapon that was kind of left for dead. He's been on a million teams at this point. Now he's having this kind of year. Golf clap for Cordero Patterson. Um, I, Whenever you go to Canton, buddy, I will be there. I promise. Because you deserve it. And I feel like you're finally getting your moment in the sun. And if he was used this way his entire career, by the way, I would not have to be debating this. He would already be a lock for the Hall of Fame. I guarantee it. Yeah, my other podcast co-host, Jeff Burkus, is a massive Cordell Patterson fan. And I got to say that it rubbed off on me like he is he's an amazing guy. I saw him when we went to Bears camp. And if you've never been around the guy, and I mean, just physically near him in his presence, he is a massive human being like he is a big dude. You just don't realize how big he is until you're next to him and you're like, yeah, he's like speaking of tight end size, like. He's tight end size for a lot of tight ends in the league, but he's faster than that, certainly in a straight line. The knock was that he wasn't great at running routes when he was young, and they used him straight as a receiver. His hands weren't amazing. He had this tremendous special teams ability, and he is a, yeah, he is a Hall of Famer, I think, as a special teamer, probably alone. But now that he's gone to a place, and I think it took a guy like Arthur Smith and a staff like that to not have any preconceived notions or maybe to have preconceived notions that were very different than the rest of the league and say, nah, 
we're not going to limit you because of what you've done in the past. Like we're going to find the things you like to do. And you started to see it like New England got a little bit of that out of him in the run game, but it was pretty limited. It was on a sort of special basis. And towards his last year with the Bears, you started to see it again a little bit in the run game where he started to look more like a running back because the first year with the Bears, they would hand him the ball and he would maybe take a cut, maybe not, maybe just power through towards the hole. And then he started to take one cut. And I remember it was about game six or seven last year. I saw him take his first handoff and he made a little jump cut and then he ran like two yards and he stopped and he cut back through the hole. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. That level of athleticism with real running back skills starting to string together moves. Now you've got a problem and you're seeing the continued maturation of that in Atlanta and you know, speaking of golf claps, golf claps to Arthur Smith and his staff for going, hey, we realize you can do a lot. We're going to do a lot with you. And you just kind of tell us if it's too much. And so far, it hasn't been too much. Yeah, I love the dude, man. I'm I'm so happy to see him succeed. I just I. It's been let's see, he was drafted in 2013, I think it was in the, in the DeAndre Hopkins, Tavon Austin class and you know, to see how far he's come, making it almost a decade in the league and all the success he's had and championships and everything like that. He he deserves it. So good on you, Cordero Patterson. Uh, three up number three, Cooper Cup, believe it or not, is on pace for just shy of 2,000 yards this season. It's like 1,964, 65 yards, somewhere around there. When you look at his game logs and you look at his metrics and his splits in, in terms of where he lines up around the field, it's not just, oh, he's a slot receiver. He's in everything. He's an X. He's a Z. He's a slot. Um, he he is everything, and he is good at all of them. Actually, no, I take that back. He's not good. He's amazing at all of them. You don't be on pace for almost 2,000 yards without being amazing. The way he moves as like a 6'2", 210 pound receiver it just doesn't doesn't look normal for somebody that size and I don't know maybe people because he played slot most of the time early in his career with Jared Goff kind of profiled him as the you know the quicker than fast the gritty the the lunch pail guy no he's he's like god I can't even try to think of like a comparison for him because he's so complete like he doesn't have a weakness he really doesn't. And, and the fact that he's being used in every single spot and he's absolutely crushing every defense he faces from every single spot. You look at his game log, you know, it's seven catches for 108. It's nine catches for 163. It's nine catches for 96. His worst game was five catches for 64 yards, which is better than Allen Robinson's best game this year, to put it in perspective. And he's getting seven for 92, nine for 130. Most recently, 10 for 156. Uh, 156, excuse me, and two more touchdowns. 800 yards and nine touchdowns in seven games. That's like a complete season for most guys. And he's just getting started. Cooper Cup is incredible. He is easily in the top five conversation for receivers in the entire league right now. I don't care what order you put people in with Devontae Adams, Jamar Chase, you know, Terry Jefferson, like whoever you want to throw in there. I don't care. As long as Cooper cup is in that top five unequivocally, uh, your list is fine. 
And anybody who leaves him out of the top five, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. You just are. Yeah, Cup's another guy like Tua uh, that I mentioned earlier. He's dominated at every level, right? He was at Eastern Washington, and he hung a couple hundred on Oregon. And, you know, Jeff Schwartz still talks about it. He's like, I don't even like watching that game. I watched him hang, you know, 200 on us. Some guy from Eastern Washington. He dominated in high school. He dominated in college. Um, you know, if you were a Vernon Adams fan as a quarterback, uh, as I was. Oh, I was. I was, I so too. was. <laughs> that game where they walked into UW and massacred a Huskies defense that had five guys drafted in the top four or five rounds uh, was, you know, again, Cup had a really good day. He's he's had good days at every level, and he's done it consistently. And the whole, you do, you kind of forget. You're, you, you do, you want to pigeonhole him. You want to say he's like this, or he's, he's best if he's here, or, you know, he's really only productive here. That's all window dressing. But it's not. He wins from the slot. He wins outside. He wins with speed. He's got great hands. He's incredibly tough. He's tough at the catch point. He's tough with the ball in his hands. He runs hard. He's not slow. And he's definitely not small. I know I always forget, like, oh, you're 6'2", 210. That's that's really good sized. I know we have some trees at receiver in this league, but 6'2", 210 is not an undersized wide receiver in any metric. He's just there isn't something you can point to and go, well, you know, Cooper Cup would be a lot better if. Like, fill in that statement. What is that, right? His releases are good. His strength is good. His speed is, I would say, above average. His hands, very good. Concentration, excellent. You know, toughness at the catch point, yes. So whenever anybody wants to say, oh, he's this, he's slow, he's small, he's only good in the slot, he's, and the answer is no. No, you just haven't been watching. And now that they've added Matthew Stafford to distribute the ball, he's just unlocked like the final boss level, right? He was always good, <laughs> even with Jared Goff. I mean, his numbers are very good with Jared Goff throwing the ball. With Matthew Stafford throwing the ball, he's excellent. Like, he's just flat out excellent. There was a catch he made in the Cardinals game. I don't know if you saw it. And this was the game that the Rams got blown out in. It was their only loss of the season so far. Um, and, you know, it's it's made the rounds on Twitter several times, mostly for people going, oh, my God, this throw from Matthew Stafford is amazing. But the first thing I saw was, oh, my God, how did Cooper Cup hold on to that ball? Because Stafford threw a missile in between three Cardinals deep down the field, and Cup got annihilated. Like, I'll throw it up on screen so people can watch it. He got fucking blasted. And held onto that ball. And that's Cooper Cup. It's not just the fact that he gets open. It's not just the fact that you can throw it in the tightest of windows. It's that not only will he catch it, but he will catch it while getting his rib cage absolutely detonated and he will hold on to it. That's why I love Cooper Cup. He's reliable, he's explosive, he's smart, he's fast, like he's everything. He is a complete wide receiver in every sense of the word. And uh, get on board the Cooper Cup train, because it's leaving. <laughs> this week's episode is sponsored by Purple Mattress. Purple Mattress has been the most innovative sleep system on the market for over 15 years now, and it's all because of their own unique patented technology, the Purple Grid. 
The Purple Grid has over 1,800 open air channels to help keep you cool and comfortable as we kind of wind down with these hot summer nights and transition into fall. And also, unlike memory foam that remembers everything, the grid bounces back as you move and shift so that you never get that sort of I'm stuck kind of feeling like you do with memory foam. It's also highly flexible to relieve pressure on your body no matter your size and no matter how you prefer to sleep. It's a really awesome, innovative design, and once you try it out and you kind of see how it works for yourself, you'll really understand why so many people love it. So if you want to try it out for yourself, go to purple.com bootleg10 and use promo code bootleg10, and for a limited time with that code, you'll get 10% off of any Purple mattress order of $200 or more. Again, that is purple.com slash bootleg10, promo code bootleg10, for 10% off of any order of $200 or more. Terms and conditions, of course, apply. Moving on to three down, number one here. Again, teams, players, schemes, whatever, that, or, or in this case, entire organizations that we feel had a very rough week around the NFL. We, we have to start with the Chicago Bears because every single week, we feel like we're hitting rock bottom, and then it, it just digs a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and we think it can't get worse, and then it does. Just getting absolutely blown out by the Buccaneers, 38-3, to and it was not that close. It, it wasn't even, like, the Geneva Convention, I thought, was about to be invoked. It was that bad. Like, I've seen the Bears lose a lot of games. It's a common occurrence for them. That was one of the most embarrassing losses for the entire organization since probably the back-to-back 50 burgers against Mel Tucker's defense, I would say. That's that's like where we're at now. It's like the lowest point of the Mark Tressman era. We're right there again. Except, <laughs> believe it or not, Mark Tressman's offense averaged five more points per game than Matt Nagy's offense this year. So... It's probably worse. Like, it's even worse than the worst of Mark Tressman. I know the Bears have a unofficial policy. They don't fire people midseason. But holy shit, EJ. We something needs to change. I I can't I can't go on like this. It's it's unwatchable. It's completely unwatchable. <sighs> Alright. Let's get started. Uh, I put out a thread of selected media pieces, including a tweet that you put out, the one about Tressman's offense versus Nagy's. Uh, it's a bit of a flip, right? Mel Tucker was completely uh, worthless as a defensive coordinator, and his defense quit uh, very, <laughs> very visibly in midseason, gave up a couple of 50 burgers. Sean Desai's defense is actually doing uh, a miracle work right now with what they've been given which is almost no secondary a very good defensive line rotation and they have been he has been doing smoke and mirrors for the whole season the fact that the bears defense has not been eviscerated in the back end on the regular is amazing so sean desai golf clap we're going to start with the positive that'll maybe keep people from jumping to their to their harm um (laughs) everything else is and absolute flaming dumpster full of shit and it starts at the top the ownership and i reminded everybody of this the ownership group of the bears took eight days by my recollection 
uh, recollection at the end of last season to assess the future of the franchise, right? I think they should have known day one after the season, Black Monday, we know what's going on here. We know what we need to do. Um, again, Jeff and I had said mid-season, uh, December, I think, 6th, we put out a podcast last year called Burn It All Down. And it was like <laughs> what the Bears need to do to get going, which is dump your heavy contracts, invest in some rookies, see what you can get in trade, get all the cash off the books, fire the coach, fire the GM, start over, realize it's going to take another year and a half, do everything you can to get a quarterback, and then build from there. And it's going to be two years until you can clear enough money, clear enough space, get enough players and start over. But if you start now, at this point, they'd be almost a year into that. They didn't. What they did at the end of the last season was take eight days to ham and haw and then come back and have a very weak press conference where they said, you know, we think running it back with no changes is exactly what we should do. And anybody who'd watched any of the Bears last year went, huh? <laughs> like, what are, what are you basing that on, right? And it came out that they had conversations with Pace and Nagy during this time, like consultative conversations, like what should we do? And like, these are the guys whose jobs are on the line. What are you doing talking to them about what you should do? You should be able to look at their results top to bottom, right? Not just, not just wins and losses, but definitely wins and losses and say, this is what we think. They thought that this again with no changes was a good idea. It wasn't. It was a terrible idea. Now they've wasted a year. So ownership's not off the hook. Ryan Pace made a lot of bad decisions recently, but none worse than his O-line decisions. The idea to let Charles Leno go, you can say it was a cap move. You can't really say that with Jimmy Graham on the roster, who's oh, had God. three catches this year, would, you know, make it like $9 that, million. That's got to be the worst contract in football, right? Well, I don't know. Nick Foles is really close. They gave Nick Foles a raise <laughs> and a draft pick to go get him. So, I mean, there's a oh, lot of stacking no. bad decisions. But the idea that you were going to let Charles Leno go on the hopes that Tevin Jenkins, who we both loved, was going to come on and play well. And then something at the other side, maybe Jermaine Effetti. And everybody's like, oh, Jason Peters. Jason Peters was on a fishing boat. When he called him in desperation and said, I assume, Jason, I screwed this up super bad. Can you come save my ass? Right? Europe. And Jason Peters has been the best Bears offensive lineman. He's making a million dollars a year. And I saw somebody use that as justification today that there was way better than Leno. <laughs> like, the only reason you called Peters is because after like two or three weeks of watching you know, this line struggle and submarine the entire offense, you called Jason Peters out of desperation retirement. And luckily for you, he said yes and came back and he's been their best lineman. That's, you can't do that. It set the entire offense up for failure. We'll talk about Nagy. Mm, not great. I really want to go to his scheme. His scheme is getting detonated by anybody you want to name matt bowen dan orlovsky like anybody that looks at the scheme uh, nate tice had a great thread about uh all the things people are saying about justin fields well he should just throw it quicker and he showed all the plays where he gets sacked in like under two seconds and strip sacked like he, the scheme is not only not doing a rookie quarterback who is talented any favors it's also stunting his development it's going to make him start seeing ghosts he's on pace to get hit in the david Carr range Oof. yeah yes 
like matching the David Carr sack rate. Um, they are four percentage points worse than any other team in the NFL sack rate right now. Um, yeah, I, the lows are incredibly low. They're not scoring any points. They're not protecting their quarterback. The only thing they have going for them is they did rush for 124 yards versus a very good front in Tampa Bay. So Khalil Herbert and the run blocking is okay, but where does running get you in the modern NFL? And the answer is mm, pretty much nowhere if you don't have a passing game. And the passing game is so bad, desperately bad, that the Bears stand like no chance. And yet people are saying, well, we should... We should give them a little more rope. And the answer is no, you shouldn't have given them the rope last year. You did. And this is what you got. And it is horrible. And I really think Bears fans have been conditioned. Like the Bears have kind of Stockholm syndrome their own fans to the point where they see one good thing and they're like, see, see, it's good. They're so used to accepting pieces of whole teams as a win that they don't even know what a good comprehensive team looks like. All they have to do is look across the line of scrimmage last Sunday, and they saw a grown-up NFL team kick the shit out of them. And it just <laughs> laid it wide open to, oh, so if you want to compete, because the bottom line is, look, Tampa Bay is the defending champs. If you want to compete, you got to at least give Tampa Bay a game, right? If you're going to say, we're going to win the division, our goal is to win the Super Bowl, all the things that coaches and owners and GMs say – you got to be able to give them a game, right? And I have never, ever in my life left a bar if I went there to watch a game. I have stayed through the bitter end of some horribly crappy football games. I left before halftime. It was 28 to 3, and by the time I got home, it was 35 to 3. I live 11 minutes from the bar, <laughs> right? They scored again before halftime and then just continued to blow them out. Like, there was no chance. There was no reason to stay. The scheme wasn't going to showcase any young players that I could look at for talent or development. They were just going to get pounded, and I was just going to be sad. So I just paid my bill and left. Like, I've never done that. It is a low point. The Bears need to make serious changes. I realize like you do, they don't do it midseason. And there's not a lot to be gained. They can't talk to people under contract right now. So who are they going to get besides who's already on the staff? Not a lot. But uh, if anything, I might want to bring a new GM in. And again, people that are under contract, it's tough. But I would want somebody to get a head start on this next draft class. And that's that's tough to do. Uh, at this point, but there's not a lot of good answers. There's nowhere they can turn. There's nobody they're waiting for to come off IR to really change their season. They're in the bottom and it's going to stay that way for a while because not only do they not have the scheme, the coach or the GM, they also don't have a ton of draft picks and they have almost no money because they've pushed a lot of money into the future. So it's triply bad. It's one of the worst situations overall. If you look at sort of the, the whole landscape, uh, for any team in the NFL. And that is that is a rough thing to say about the team that I follow the most closely. I, I'm not entirely sure what they're going to do because the key to going from really bad to really good in the NFL, when you get a young quarterback, like that's the window. Everybody's like, okay, now, because you, when you get a young quarterback, typically it's like, oh, you're bad. You don't have any good players, so you have a lot of money available, and you have a lot of picks, and they're all in the top 10. And, it, it, you know, it's like a Jacksonville type thing uh, back in 2017 where they were shit, 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 2017, one play away from the Super Bowl. 
where everything kind of came together. Blake Bortles was cheap. They bought a defense that was amazing. Uh, you know, they had, uh, well, <laughs> ironically, Allen Robinson, but he got hurt that year. But they had <laughs> other weapons that were stepping up. Leonard Fournette was a rookie running over the league. The offensive line played well. Like, everything com- came together for them. They went from terrible to really good. You look at long-term um, growth with some teams. You know, the Texans, like, had some players. They were bad, 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 bad. Traded up to the top 12. Got to Sean. Suddenly became good. The Chiefs were average at best. They had a ceiling on them with Alex Smith. They had the pieces. Traded up. Got Mahomes. Won a Super Bowl. When teams have young, cheap, talented quarterbacks, that's the window. But they need money, and they need draft picks to go with those young, cheap quarterbacks to surround them with talent. And then they can win a Super Bowl. The Bears don't have that. Because it's if you're bad and cheap, that's fine. If you're good and expensive, that's fine. If you're bad and expensive, that's fucking horrible. And they're bad and expensive. So, I don't know what they're going to do. I, I really don't. Like, There's no easy way out of this. No, it's going to be a couple of years. And and that's what we said even last December is like, even if you start now, it's a year and a half, right? If you had a fire sale and fire sales don't happen in the NFL. Somebody brought this point up this week. It's not like the NBA. It's not like the NFL. Um, It might have been Lester Wilfong, uh, the editor at Windy City, who said, look, it just doesn't happen in these sports because it's not like Madden. You're not getting fair value. You're going to get low end picks if that most teams are savvy enough in the NFL to say, oh, he's getting released. Cool, we'll wait, right? And if you get a pick, it's like a conditional sixth or, a, or maybe a fifth for, a, you know, even a star player because it's a half-year rental or they're expensive. You know, they got to have cap flexibility so the suitors are limited. You're not going to stack a whole bunch of assets and just rebuild like you can in Madden, and I think fans are kind of used to that. It doesn't work that way in the NFL. And, you know, they pushed so much money into the future, people are like, oh, well, all these other contracts are falling off the books. Well, you realize that means those players fall off the books, too. So you're going to have like two thirds of your money in like 13 players. You do have to fill a roster, right? It's going to be tough for them to fill a roster. You're going to see a lot of UDFAs. You're going to see a lot of low end draft picks. You're going to see a lot of million dollar for one year contracts just to fill the roster next year because the guys that are dropping off are, you know, lower to mid-end contracts the guys with heavy contracts quinn mac the Foles contract is you're still eating dead money if you get rid of him next year jimmy graham will go off if uh, at the end of this year without very much dead money you know you're not going to have a lot of guys left on the team the secondary is largely bereft like eddie jackson got paid and jalen's there he's still cheap but like after that you're gonna see kind of what you're seeing this year a bunch of guys that you haven't heard of or are on very low end veteran starter deals um, because you're going to have to, there isn't any other option. So it's, it's going to be rough and it's going to be a while, right? Rookie coaches don't typically come into bad situations and light it up. Occasionally they come into situations where there's been some talent and it hasn't been maximized. The bears do have a small core of young talent, but it's not big enough and like you said, by the time it's ready to go, by the time they have more money to surround those guys with something, it's going to be too late. They're going to have to start paying them. So the window is going to slam shut before it ever really opens. And it's not a great situation. It's going to have to be pretty drastic, um, the changes they make. And 
there's no guarantee it's going to happen anytime before the next couple of years. Uh, let's go to something slightly less depressing. Unless you're a Seahawks fan, then earmuffs. Uh, three down, number two. I think over the last three weeks, honestly, for, for a lot of Seahawks fans, it might be a little bit refreshing. If I was if I was a Hawks fan, at least, I think I might find it refreshing because it, it finally answers the question, what happens without Russ? Like, where is this franchise without Russell Wilson? I have advocated for a long time that he is a top 10 quarterback ever because he dragged an otherwise sorry-ass roster to the playoffs year after year, made them contenders year after year, when, let's be real, Pete Carroll, who had... Most of the control of that organization, we can argue about who was making picks between him and John Schneider. Most people seem to think like Pete Carroll had final sign-off. They were not drafting well for years and years and years. They kind of coasted off of, you know, the early 2010 success where they got Russell, they got Sherman, they brought in Bam Bam, Bobby, all these guys. They, They built the Legion of Boom and they got Russell and they rode that for like a solid four or five years and they never replaced it they never replenished and now we're here where now you don't have your all-time great quarterback to drag this roster to win after win after win constantly being in games that they have no business in constantly winning games that they absolutely should not win like it, it became kind of a meme of like of course the Seahawks win of course Russell comes back well Most teams don't have Russell Wilson, so they don't get to come back. They just lose. And now, without Russell Wilson, now it's like, okay, well, we got Geno Smith. Well, this is the difference between Geno Smith and Russell Wilson. They probably win all three of these last games if they have Russell Wilson. They're probably sitting pretty fighting for the top of the division. But now, with Geno Smith, when they have a normal quarterback, and this is nothing against Geno Smith, they're terrible. They can't win a game. So... If I was a Seahawks fan, I would find it refreshing because it finally answered the question, who's actually important in this organization? Is it Pete Carroll? No. Is it either of the coordinators? No. Is it the GM? No. It's Russell fucking Wilson. So when he demands a trade, that's when things happen because they know they're not important. What have they done to contribute to the success of this team other than draft mostly poorly for the last eight years? It's Russell. It's nobody else. So in terms of, is it time for Pete Carroll to go? He's a great coach. Probably go to the Hall of Fame. Won a lot of games. Won a Super Bowl. I have immense respect for what Pete Carroll has done for the game of football. But the Seahawks need to get a head coach in there that's going to drag at least a little bit more weight for this team. Because as Russell ages, he's not going to be able to drag all of the weight by himself anymore. So... Get yourself your own version of Brandon Staley, if that's even possible. And finally, share the load a little bit. They haven't done that in a decade. They haven't done that since the Legion of Boom. They haven't given Russell help since then. It's about damn time they do that. Yeah, the calls are louder. If you've, you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I hear them. Uh, There are very prominent Seahawks fans, Mina Kimes, Danny Kelly, uh, And this is not a drumbeat that has not been present, but it's been subdued because, again, Russell doesn't cure all the ills, but he cures a great many of them. 
And it took three weeks with no Russell for it to get good and loud. And Mina Kimes came out on ESPN today and said, look, both things can be true. I love Pete Carroll. He is one of the greatest sports coaches in Seattle history, not Seahawks history, Seattle history. Seattle has a history of championships. Uh, Sonics won a championship. Storm won multiple championships. Like Pete Carroll brought a Super Bowl to Seattle and had sustained success. That can all be true. And it can also be true that it is now time for him to go because his decision making, uh, not only in the draft room, depending on how much influence he had there, but on the field in terms of the offensive scheme has been questioned. Like DK Metcalf has like one of the highest uh, averages per route targeted in the NFL. He's like number two. Right. And they targeted him once in the first half. Like, and it was and a long a touchdown. touchdown. <laughs> yeah, it's a long touchdown. It's a big play. Great. People are like, well, good. Like, chalk it off. Like, do other things. The Saints run defense is exceptional. <laughs> top handful in the league. Like, top three in the league. They ran into the teeth of the Saints defense over and over and over again. I think Mina quoted uh, 11 eight-man boxes, and they ran into nine of them which is just stubbornness at that point. Like it is just stubbornness and to say, nope, it'll crack. Like, and that's the Pete Carroll thing, right? Keep running it. Don't care who's back there. Don't care who the opponent is. We're just going to keep running and it'll crack. When you have a guy like DK Metcalf, that's producing at the level he does, when you have a receiver that's as good and as talented as Tyler Lockett, especially down the field, um, you throw them the ball some, some, and that gives you a better chance to win. And and Pete is steadfast. Nope, nope, we'll do it this way. And that time has passed. And people have been saying that for two or three years. Now, three games with no Russell Wilson has laid it bare for the whole league and everybody else to see. This isn't working. It's not close to working. The defense has not been working for a while. Last year, the defense was atrocious. Um, Ken Norton Jr. I'm not sure why he's still employed as a defensive coordinator. Like his defenses have been terrible, quite frankly. And it's it's time for some change. Now, whether Russell stays or Russell goes is is quite frankly a separate question. Um, but Carroll should go. And I'm not so sure that Schneider, who I'm a huge fan of, but has made questionable decision after questionable decision. We joke about this. We've joked about this on the draft live stream for years. Like, oh, it's a Seahawks pick. It's going to be someone we don't know, right? And, you know, they've drafted super questionably, and it has so caught up with them. And I'm not sure that that Schneider gets to ride his laurels through this one and, and survive. Like, it might be a clean sweep. They may have to start over. And if they do, I would imagine that Russell at his age opts out and says, trade me, right? Get me to somewhere where I have a chance to win, you know, another ring at the end of my career because I'm not going to be here for year four of your rebuild, most likely, which is what it's going to take, right? Again, they don't have a ton of great assets. If you look at that roster top to bottom, it is not what I would consider loaded. There's talent there, like Lockett and Metcalf. Chris Carson's good, but he's wearing down. Um, The offensive line, you know, They've got Dwayne Brown, not a spring chicken. Bobby Wagner, not a spring chicken. Um, You know, a a decent rotation of guys. Carlos Dunlap on the defensive line, not a spring chicken. Their draft picks there. LJ Collier was rumored to be on the trade block this week, and 
who who's going to pay for that? Like he hasn't panned out. So it is not a loaded roster by any stretch. They have a few good young players, but it's, I would hardly even call it a core. Um, now they do have some money and they do have some draft picks. So it could be a quicker rebuild than a place like Chicago. But again, you're going to be quite frankly, probably quarterbackless unless Russell just digs in and says, not leaving Seattle. I have roots here. I'm, you know, just, I'm just going to ride it in until it, we just roll the wings off it. Like, fine. That's one of those things. But other than that, you know, you got to solve the quarterback thing. If you got Russell, that's great. It's just like we said about Green Bay before the year. If Aaron comes back, it's Green Bay's division. Same thing we said about Dak. Dak comes back, Cowboys win that division. Like if Russell comes back, you've got a chance. I don't care what your roster is. Um, You need to make the roster better and give him some help. Like you said, make him not do all the heavy lifting. But if Russell goes, I don't care how much money and draft picks you have because you're right back to square one. You got to hit on a quarterback. Like you got to get a good one and then you can do the other things. Is it weird of me to think that I'd be, there'd be a higher chance of him wanting to leave if they kept Carol than if they got rid of, like, I almost feel like if they brought in a new GM and a new coach, he would want to stay because then there would be some actual organizational change that he's been for a long time, quietly asking for. And then the last couple of years, very loudly demanding of like, Hey guys, get your shit together. I'm 32 years old. And yeah, I think I can play into my forties like Tom Brady, but I'm 32 years old. Get your shit together. So, uh, again, I, there's a lot of young coaches that would love to go work with Russell Wilson. Brian Dable sure. in the Pacific Northwest, sign me up. I would love it. Um, yeah. You look at, God, even if, would Lincoln Riley want to do that? Maybe. Um, mm. Then again, Lincoln Riley might never want to leave Norman because he's going to win a million games and he's a god there and he could demand whatever paycheck he wants. But I would at least try, see if he's interested. Either way, as long as Pete Carroll's there, I think we're going to keep running into this scenario every single year where you're running Alex Collins instead of throwing a DK Metcalf, even when it it, it, all analytics sense and regular football sense tells you not to do that. And they're still doing it. I don't know. It's, it's one of these organizations where it's like, they're so close to being great, but there's just a little roadblock that's in the way. And right now I feel like that roadblock is, uh, is Pete Carroll. And, uh, Three down number three, also in the NFC West, also a little bit of a similar story for different reasons, if that makes sense. Uh, Kyle Shanahan, we we need to talk about Kyle Shanahan because he we know he's not going anywhere. He just signed a massive extension. He's going to be there for years. When you take out the 2019 season, which was before the defensive meta shift in the NFL to playing more two high structures again. This was 2019, and then in 2020, you know, you had the the Brandon Staley tree showing like, oh, we can base out of two high and then roll down into cover three week out of that so that we get better leverage against all of these, you know, jet sweeps and crossing routes and everything like that. And we can still play cover three structures, but from two high, and it completely eliminates all this kind of West Coast outside zone bootleg stuff. But back in 2019, defenses in the NFL still weren't doing that. And they dominated. And they went to a Super Bowl. You take out that one season, you know what his record is? Right right now, his total record, by the way, including 2019, I actually have it up here. 31 and 39. It's a 44% winning percentage. 
Not great. You take out that 2019 season, he is 18 and 36. That is a 33% winning percentage. That's Matt Patricia territory, who was 31%. I don't care who you are. I don't care that you went to a Super Bowl. Four out of your five years, you're winning the same amount of games at the same rate as Matt Patricia. There's a fucking problem here. And I understand they dealt with a lot of injuries. So do most teams. And most teams have more success than that. It's 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 frustrating, or at least it was frustrating. Now it's just full-on enraging. Because the rest of the league has caught up a little bit to some of the things that Kyle Shanahan likes to do. How he structures his offense. And there has been little to no adjustment. And on top of that, their personnel management has been horrible. Like, you're giving all these carries inside the tackles to Eli Mitchell. And I like Eli Mitchell. But he's more of an edge player. He's more of the guy you give counter carries to, which they did in the first drive. And he got like 60 yards in the first drive. And they and they scored. And then they started running him inside. And all of a sudden, his yards per carry dropped like a rock. He's more of the edge threat. You give him counter. You give him crack toss. Trey Sermon's the guy you want to run inside zone with 15 times a game. And they're not even giving him any touches at all. They're not even giving him any snaps. Meanwhile, you got Brandon Ayuk, who's a Ferrari of a wide receiver. Like, I'm sorry, you can't look at his rookie year and tell me he's a bad football player. Brandon Ayuk is really fucking good at football. And he's getting nothing. Like, they're feeding the ball to everybody but Brandon Ayuk. They, they were giving Travis Benjamin snaps over Brandon Ayuk a few weeks ago. It's insanity. And then you got Jimmy, Jimmy G, who... Let's be honest, he ain't it. And I know Trey Lance was injured this week because they ran him like 15 times on purpose and he got hurt because they ran him 15 times on purpose. A rookie. Okay. Again, personal personal mismanagement, theme of the day. But even when Trey Lance was healthy, it's not like Jimmy was performing better. He was still bad early in the season before Jimmy got hurt. And they still weren't using Trey Lance. And guess what? When Trey Lance probably comes back next week, Jimmy's still going to start, even though he's been playing terribly. So the personnel mismanagement, the lack of adjustment to when defenses adjusted to him, and we're here. We're at a 44% win rate that very easily could be much lower than that outside of one dream season where you had Five first-round picks on the defensive line. You had an amazing offensive line. You had a quarterback who somehow against all odds stayed healthy for the first time of his life. You had a running game that was great. And you had really good coordinators. They had the one year. Other than that, it's been a disaster. So I know Kyle Shanahan's not going anywhere. But I went from excited and hopeful, based on the past, to a little bit frustrated, to now I'm just downright pissed. Because... Week after week, we see the same problems and the same mistakes, and they're not changing anything. And they're two and four. And they deserve to be two and four. And if they continue to not change anything, by the end of the year, guess what? They're going to be four and 13. And they're going to be right back to picking in the top five. Except this time, they won't have to trade up. Oh, wait, they don't have picks. So, yeah, that's where we're at. I... It's another one of these situations. I don't know how to fix it. I really don't. And it's really frustrating. And if I was a Niners fan, I would be fucking pissed. 
Well, you certainly wouldn't be hopeful. And that's a change, right? We have heralded Shanahan's scheme, like his run game, mostly. And I, I can't believe I'm going to say this because I certainly wouldn't have said it two years ago. It seems like Shanahan is the anti-McVay, right? Interesting. McVay is a guy that looks at what he's doing and has had a similar situation, right? Where he had a scheme. That's the whole reason he got his whole reason. He was the youngest head coach in the NFL. He had a scheme offensively that people were having trouble stopping and Fangio figured him out, right? Bears came in and laid waste to the Ram scheme and McVeigh was visibly disturbed. He was like, wait a minute, this has always worked. What do you mean? And he had to, you know, like, Put his tail between his legs, go back, watch the tape after the season and go, what happened? Because everybody was like, ooh, we can stop him now. Look at this. We got a blueprint. It was that kind of a game. McVeigh could have doubled down and said, nope, like not enough people are going to catch up or not enough people are going to change and do what Fangio did or they can't do what Fangio did. I'm going to run it back, right? I'm, I'm going to get a couple of better players and I'm just going to, I'm going to stick to my scheme because my scheme is good. He didn't do that. He went back and said, Why, what happened? Why is this wrong? How do I need to change? And he tried to do it with Goff. And he did a little bit. He morphed the scheme. But Goff couldn't hang. Goff couldn't move as far as he wanted to move. And so he, after one season, said, nah, I got to do a big thing. Like, I, again, have to cut with what I've done in the past and do something different because I'm not going to go past here. And I feel like that's where Kyle is with the 49ers, where he's like, my scheme is good. I can get there. Instead of going, my scheme's not working in the current setup of the league, of my personnel, of the current defensive mindset. Like, I need to shift. Everybody keeps saying offensive mastermind. And I feel like he's one of those guys that might be a much better coordinator, I think is a much better offensive coordinator than he is a head coach. And I actually would like to see him, I don't want to call it retreat. I would like to see him take an offensive coordinator position somewhere. I think he would be very successful if that's all he had to do. I don't think he's great at the head coaching thing. We're looking at his overall record and saying not. But whereas McVay is kind of constantly, you know, there's the phrase, kill your darlings from writing, right? The the lines mm. you love, like, get rid of them because, you know, you need to move on. And, like, Shanahan has to kill his darlings, right? That's what he has to do right now. That what was working three years ago is not going to work anymore. That's been made clear. What are you going to do about it? McVeigh's like, I will cut my losses. I will salt the earth. I will move on, right? Fast. I will do it every year and I will do it aggressively and rigorously. And Kyle's going the other way. So when I say the anti McVeigh, that's what I mean. He's just like, nope, it's going to work. It's it's good and it's going to work. And McVeigh's like, it did work, but it doesn't work anymore. I'm doing something different. And until we see that kind of motion or that willingness, because I do feel like there's a, a piece of ego here with, with Shanahan just believing to the end that he has the answers when... The results on the field keep saying you don't have the answers until we see that willingness to switch it up and change rapidly. I don't think we're going to see massive change. And that's that's a rough call for 49ers fans, right? Because, yeah, they're frustrated and pissed. But also, what's the hope on the horizon? Because he did just sign a big extension. So kicking him out is a is a pretty impactful move and not likely to happen. So all you're hoping for is get with the program, right? 
update, modernize, do something different. I'm not sure it's going to happen. And until it does, or if it does, I don't see, I'm with you. I don't see a way out. There was a, you know, you brought up Sean McVay adjusting and being aggressive and everything like that. Uh, Like the main concept that the Rams use these days, like passing concept, it's still the same one that they kind of majored in before, which is flood. Like it's a three level concept. Same thing the Browns do. Um, in a way, like the 49ers still do it. They don't do it as much as McVay and they don't do it as much as Stefanski, but it's, hey, I'm running a vertical stretch. I've got an intermediate route and I've got one of the flat. One, two, three. Jared Goff was good at that because it's it's a half field read. It's a predefined. Deep guy's there for the alert. Most of the time, the intermediate's going to be there, but if you have a hang corner that's under the intermediate, you hit the flat, never go broke taking a profit. The problem was <laughs> when defenses started adjusting to that and taking it away, Jared Goff could never get to the backside dig. And again, it's been brought up by multiple analysts. I think Deontay Lee was the first one that I saw bring it up, and I was like, oh, that's a really, really good point. The backside dig is pretty much always going to be there. But it's also the fourth read. And having a quarterback that can not only hang in the pocket long enough without panicking to get to the fourth read and also get himself to a good platform with pocket movement and also have the arm to absolutely fucking rip that backside dig because it's a tight window and you have to hit it. And if you're going up against a man corner on the backside, which most of the time they are, it's a hard throw to make. Jared Goff couldn't do it. And McVeigh was like, look, I can I can adjust to these modern defenses when they're taking away that front side flood if I have a quarterback that can hit the, hit the backside dig and punish it when they take it away. He didn't have that before. He has it now. Bada bing, bada boom. Matthew Stafford hitting the backside dig and they're winning games. It's a very hard concept to stop if you have the right quarterback. And that's the difference between McVeigh and Shanahan. Is Shanahan doesn't have the right quarterback, but he's refusing to move off of that quarterback and at least give the young quarterback that has the arm talent to, quote-unquote, hit that backside dig. It's a little different in their offense, but again, kind of speaking of generalizations here, he's got a young, talented guy that can do things that his starter can't do, and he won't move off. So it's a difference in mentality. It's a... It's a frustrating case of somebody maybe thinking they're the smartest guy in the room. And I'm sorry, when you're winning, when your best case scenario is you're winning 44% of your games, you're not. You're not the smartest guy in the room. Like Mike Tomlin wouldn't be caught dead with a losing season. He's dragged the corpse of Big Ben in the last three years, and they're still not losing games like this. Like Kyle Shanahan doesn't have an excuse. He just doesn't. Like, Talk about injuries, talk about whatever you want. There's no excuses for losing at this rate, not with this roster. And they are. So, again, I'm not saying he should be fired. I'm saying he should change. Because if he doesn't change, eventually he will be fired. Yeah, and the the weird thing is, like, all he's got to do is look around the division, right? He can look to one of his best friends, right? He can look to Cliff like he and Cliff are tight. We already talked about McVay, who's in the same division. It's just downstate. He could figure that out easy enough. He could look to Cliff, right? That 
the Cardinals did the same thing, right? They just spent a pick on Josh Rosen and they went, nah, we, we need a different thing. And they drafted Murray and they took a lot of crap for that the, in the consecutive year, right? You just took one last year. What do you mean you were wrong about a very expensive, impactful draft pick, right? And they said, no, this is what we need. Like, again, the McVeigh thing, like, I need Stafford because he can hit the dig. And Cliff said, I need Murray because he can do the things that Josh Rosen can't that I want to do. And both, you know, both leaders, both, you know, GMs and, you know, owners have to sign off on that kind of thing because it's expensive said, all right, we'll follow you. We believe. Right. So he's got two examples in recent history in his division of hey, this is how these guys are not only surviving, but thriving. Those are the two top teams in the division, undefeated and six and one. And he's sitting there at two and whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, all he has to do is look around the division and go, what did they do? And the answer is somewhat the same, bit different, and it took different timetables. But it's right there for him if he wants to look at it and say, oh, yeah, I should just pull the trigger, jettison Jimmy G., play Trey, see what happens, change the offense to fit him so that it's maximizing his opportunities and I'm it's not my offense and he has to fit, right? That's not good coaching. I don't care what level you're at. It's we went and got a guy. We paid a lot to do it. What are the things he does well? Let's maximize those as opposed to, well, he'll figure it out. My scheme's good enough. Like there's a, there's a subtle but important difference there. And unless we see that shift, the Niners are probably going to continue getting what they're getting. It's actually a really good segue for uh, three interesting. Number one, which is the upside down divisions across the NFL right now. You look at some of the division standings or rather like half the division standings and they're either exactly opposite or pretty close to exactly opposite of maybe what the consensus was before the season. Obviously, you have the Cardinals on top uh, with the one seed. They're the only undefeated team left in the league while the Hawks and the 49ers are struggling. Like I picked the 49ers to win the division because apparently me having faith in Kyle Shanahan was massively misplaced both in real football and on my fantasy football team. I'm getting absolutely fucking crushed because of this guy. But again, <laughs> I, I won't stick with that too much. Um, and then you got the Bengals owning the top spot in the AFC. They're the number one seed right now, and they're at the top of the AFC North. They just crushed probably their biggest threat in the division uh, because the Browns are so banged up. I would say the Ravens are their biggest threat, and they massacred them, like 41-17. to 17. So that's a little bit of a surprise, I would say. You got the Raiders playing really, really well in the AFC West. They're at the top of that division uh, because of... I think it's because of tiebreakers and bye weeks and everything like that. The Chargers were were off. Um, so they're at the top of the West. And then the Chiefs are struggling. They're they're under 500 halfway through the year, which is insane. And then you got the Cowboys, which we thought if Dak was healthy, there was a good chance they were going to win the division. But having a three-game lead after seven weeks is not what we expected. And I thought the Panthers were were going to challenge for at least a wild card, and they started out 3-0, and and I thought that was looking good, and then they dropped four straight. Now they're at the bottom. So pretty interesting um, division races across the league, and 
statistically, we know that half of NFL teams that make the playoffs won't make it the next year. And so far, half of the divisions uh, are not looking like how we expected. So I'd say uh, parity across the NFL is, is doing its thing, and that's good for the health of the league. Yeah, it's alive and well. And we'd gotten a listener question on YouTube. Hey, can you guys go back and talk about based off all your division preview work over the summer, like mid season, you know, how how are you doing? Like, how does that look? And and this is how it looks, right? We had the Cardinals at the bottom, both of us. We had the Bengals at the bottom, both of us. Uh the Raiders we had mid pack. And, you know, honestly, it's a game or two. Uh so they could end up there. They started on hot last year and then cooled significantly Cowboys was really Dak dependent but we really both thought Washington was going to be a foil for them in that division was going to be some legit competition and maybe take the division title Dak or not uh Washington has had the wheels fall off in some really serious ways and Dak has played the lights out with that core uh, and the defense has come up for the Cowboys which was the big difference but yeah again a three game lead after seven seven that's that's crazy (laughs) it's not Um, normal and the panthers are sort of a tale of two teams right the panthers are the first three weeks and everything since they just benched sam darnold um but the first three weeks everybody was like yeah yeah we're right that defense came together they're playing super aggressively sam is out from under adam Gase and playing well and he was let's not forget that and then whatever they got tape they got stale doesn't matter boom Sam Darnold falls in the bucket, gets benched at week seven, um, and the Panthers are dead last in their division. It doesn't look like it's going to change. Now, they may have some furious rally. It's not a crazy division, but it's not looking good right now for them. So that's the upside-down divisions. The other divisions that we didn't mention are pretty much chalk. We said if Aaron Rodgers comes back, they take the North. Guess what? Aaron Rodgers came back. Guess what? They're going to take the North. Not surprising. So if we didn't list a division, it kind of went how we thought it might. Um, I think we both had the Titans winning their division. Um, There are some weaker divisions, but these are the ones that are really surprising, Um, you know, almost midway through the season. Not quite. We're a little early for that, but uh, it just felt like after that topsy-turvy week seven that it was the right time to sort of revisit that work we did this summer and say, yeah, the NFL is doing the NFL thing where, again, it's a game or two separation in most of these divisions. And it could all switch again within the next five to six weeks, which is what makes the sport great. I can almost guarantee you there's going to be some major switches in the next five or six weeks, because that's what always happens. It's why the league's entertaining. It's why they're the number one show in America year after year after year, because it's the greatest reality show mankind has ever invented. Uh, Three interesting. Number two, is we got a lot of rookies popping off right now. We talked about Kyle Pitts and how ridiculous he is. He's a he's a unicorn among unicorns, to put it mildly. Jamar Chase <laughs> getting eight catches, and you, you put it interesting in an interesting way before the show, where you're like, look, he averaged a quarter of the field every time he caught a ball in this game. It was 25 yards per reception on eight catches yeah. like that's that's absurd so no you he's see it dominating. for like three and four catch games but when you have an eight catch game and you yeah. average a quarter of the field 25.1 per catch on eight catches that is not normal folks i, I don't care 
who you are. I don't care if you're D-Hop. I don't care if you're Devontae Adams. Like, that doesn't happen a lot. Jamar Chase is in his seventh professional football game. And he averaged a quarter of the field and, you know, was not, I don't want to say responsible for winning that game because Zama had a great game. Obviously, we talked about Burrow went over 400 yards. Great game. Being the trigger man. Tons of talent. We talked about that. Jamar Chase right now is not just good. He's not just good. He's not just a great rookie. You can take the rookie tag off it. He is blowing the doors off as a rookie. Like, he is producing at a historic level. Like, better than his running mates from college, who we thought were amazing and were. Justin Jefferson had that amazing rookie season last year. And we thought, well, Justin Jefferson was the great one. Well, he was. Jamar Chase is better, like demonstrably better at this point in the season. If he stays healthy, he's going to shatter Jefferson's marks. Like, Jamar Chase is crushing it right now. There's no other way to put it. And I'm not saying crushing for rookies or crushing for new guys or crushing for guys from LSU. He is absolutely annihilating as a wide receiver right now. It is, it's a sight to behold. Just sit back and enjoy it as a football fan. You're not going to see a lot of rookie seasons, if he stays healthy, that are going to look like his. It's it's unique. Um, when you look at Julio Jones, who a lot of people, myself included, compared Jamar to when he was coming out, because the common narrative, and again, I'm I'm one of these, was like, hey, he's he's the most physically gifted and all around specimen of a receiver in terms of like complete skill set since Julio back in 2011. We are seven games into his rookie year and he is 80% of the way to Julio's totals when Julio was a rookie. Like that's, that's insane. Like when you put it that way, like Julio had one of the better rookie seasons of his era. We had 54 catches, 960 yards, 18 yards a catch, eight touchdowns. Like that was amazing. That was absolutely amazing. One of the better rookie seasons for a receiver at that time that we had seen in a while. Jamar Chase is is making that look like child's play. Like, and I know we could say, oh, it's different eras, everything like that. Like, West Coast offense isn't that different compared to 10 years ago. Jamar Chase is the difference here. He's he's one of one, I think, among rookie receivers that I've seen since, I don't know, Randy. It's probably the last one that I saw enter the league and just immediately become like the best guy <laughs> at his position. Uh, well, at least top three. Devontae's still the guy, but I mean, shit. I, I put it out on Twitter. It's like if you had to, if you had to choose what wide receiver in the NFL you wanted over Jamar Chase for the next three years, other than Devontae Adams, can you pick one? And for me, the answer is no. Like you take Jamar Chase versus the field. Other than Devontae Adams, I'm taking Jamar Chase. Like, that's how good he is. We're seven games into his career. And I'm like, yeah, other than the consensus number one league, number one receiver in the league, that's the guy. It's it's unlike anything since Randy a couple decades ago, and and that's notable. But Pitts and Chase, as historic as they are, were not the only rookies that have been dominating because you look at Khalil Herbert, bootleg favorite. If I remember correctly, he was also a 10 gem. I think he was one of my five gems this year. Indeed um, I he had was. him I had him in my top four running backs in this class, and I got a lot of flack for that. Because I had him ahead of Travis Etchin. Um, I had him ahead of a lot of guys that people liked. But in my top four, it was um 
let's see, it was Javante, Najee, Khalil Herbert, and I think Trey Sermon was my was my top four group. Over the last three games, there's only two running backs in the entire league that have more rushing yards than Khalil Herbert's 272, and that's Derrick Henry and Jonathan Taylor. And he just put up the first 100-yard game against a very, very good Buccaneers run defense since, what was it, last year? Like, middle of last season? Like, they haven't allowed a 100-yard rusher in forever. But he just did it on on an offense that isn't good right now. And, and he still put up 100 on that very good Bucks defense. So, Khalil Herbert's real, folks. And um, I think he's making David Montgomery maybe a little bit more expendable than than what we thought going into this year. And then not only that, but speaking of running backs, Najee Harris is 11th in the NFL in yards from scrimmage. He's got 630 total, 388 rushing, 244 receiving. So he's also in that kind of, you know, Alvin Kamara, DeAndre Swift, Cordero Patterson category where it's like, doesn't matter if you call him a running back or a receiver, he's he's just a weapon. And they use him in a multitude of ways. And, uh, and he's crushing it, kind of under the radar. Again, being top 11 in the entire league as a rookie in yards from scrimmage is not an easy thing to do. So shout out to Najee Harris. Overall, I would say the offensive rookies have really acquitted themselves well. And uh, I'm excited to see what these guys do in the second half of the year. Yeah, a lot of guys lighting it up early um, and would have lit it up even earlier if they'd just been inserted in the lineup like Pitts again really not to the London game did he start to see you know what we would call appropriate usage uh in that offense and you know take that with a grain of salt you know three four games it's the beginning of his rookie year don't really worry about it he's just going to continue to do what we know he can do from here on out um Chase got started a little bit earlier um, Najee's a little bit quieter just cause Pittsburgh is not that good this year. So they're not getting a lot of press, but he's doing his part. Absolutely. And as we expected, we, one of the things that set him apart, he was my number one running back in this class was his ability as a pass catcher, which is better than most, especially down the field. Um, yeah. And a shout out to Deandre Swift too, who's on pace for like 950 or 60 receiving yards this year as a quote unquote running back. Those are, those are wide receiver numbers, folks. There's a lot <laughs> of wide receivers that don't make 750 yards and Swift is going to destroy that if they continue uh, the current pace. So Herbert's a nice surprise. He was my RB five um, just out of the top bubble, but loved him to death and really glad he's getting again, early opportunity. If David Montgomery hadn't been hurt, we wouldn't be talking about Khalil Herbert. Um, so there's, there's landing spot, there's opportunity, uh, that comes if you're not a first stringer as to when you're going to get those touches or, or when the, the staff thinks you're ready, maybe in Kyle Pitts's case for, for a full workload, None of that stuff is very easy to determine when guys are drafted and they end up with the team. You can project, but again, things like injuries. If David Montgomery was healthy, Khalil Herbert would probably have about 175 or 80 yards total right now in relief duty because he'd be the number three back where he was a couple of weeks ago. David Montgomery gets hurt and Damian Williams goes down with COVID and boom, you got your opportunity and he's making the most of it. He looks great doing it. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, having Montgomery till the end of his rookie contract is cool, but at the end, you don't have to pay him, right? Because you've got the replacement in-house, maybe the already de facto starter by that point in-house. That's that's really good out of a fourth-round pick. So, um, 
it's cool to see young guys light it up early. That didn't used to happen as often. There were more coaches that were sort of anti-rookie. And I think um, schemes were a little bit more complicated. They made them more complicated and just expected people to learn them. Now it's like, hey, what can we get you right now as a package that you can learn fast? Because I don't have much of a window as a coach, so you've got less of a window as a player. Let's get <laughs> you going. Let's light the fuse. And we're seeing that. Um, these guys are lighting it up, not just lighting it up for rookie numbers, but lighting it up you know, league-wide. Again, Najee Harris is not 11th among rookies in rushing. He's 11th in the league um, in his production. We talked about Chase. Pitts will be right there by the end of the year. Um, Khalil Herbert, if, again, Montgomery takes a little bit longer to get back, um, they're they're not going to be able to easily take him out of the lineup. He could end up with some very good rookie totals um, for a running back and you know, going forward in the future, I'd be surprised if he's not in the running for RB1 based on just plain old production, especially if a new staff comes in. Yeah. And I mean, Dave Montgomery all of a sudden becomes trade bait after this season because I think he has one year left on his rookie deal, but yep, there's, there's teams that are hunting for young running backs. I mean, the Falcons, Cordero Patterson, again, he's 30 and then their number two is Mike Davis. It's like, Hey, you, you want to give us a pick back and take Montgomery off our hands because we got this other guy we like? Like, Oh, you know it would be really fun? Not that they have – I don't know if they have picks, but we were just talking about it earlier. New offensive huh. staff comes into Seattle, and Chris Carson's, like, beat up, and <laughs> they don't want to pay him again. Montgomery like, fits what they like. Oh, he'd be a lot of fun. He's faster than Carson in a way. Like, I like Chris Carson. This is not an anti-Chris Carson rant at all. Like, Chris Carson is a really good football player who has well outperformed his – draft status um but you know he's he's taking a lot of care he's got a lot of mileage and it would be a, that'd be a fun fit um depending again on who they bring in as an offensive uh coordinator at that point so but or, yeah a lot of fun actually he's lighted up here's an interesting one mm-hmm. when's david coming back first things first uh they're saying currently probably another week or two so but that's you know current progress. baltimore baltimore Oh, for sure. That'd be that'd be delightful. He would I mean, sell he would there. he would play over Freeman. He would play over Bell. He'd he would be play the number over one. All these guys. Yeah, yeah. he'd be in, instantly number one. And they wouldn't say no because they're trying to make the playoffs here. Shit, and I, I should kind of like that, that. That would be win 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 because Montgomery would go to an offense where he fits very well and he fits, quite frankly, the culture of the team. Not that he doesn't fit in Chicago. He's a great player and a, and a great quiet leader there. His skill set fits very well with what Baltimore wants to do. He is clearly better than any back they have healthy in their backfield right now. Uh, Chicago trading away young, cheap talent isn't really the thing, but if you're going to get a pick out of it, because again, uh, they did move up to get Montgomery, so he was two picks, not one. But if you can recoup, say, a round later, um, then you picked him up, like, that would be the kind of move they need to start making. They'll never do it, but, yeah. They won't do it, but I do think it would be... It would be fun. It would be is, fun. <laughs> which is why it's <laughs> fun to do this podcast, because yeah. we could just throw yeah. stuff like that at the wall and go, oh, yeah, that would be cool. Speaking of fun... uh, at what point can we start looking at Derek Carr as an MVP candidate? Because he just got off a game against an NFL defense where he threw 34 times and completed 31 of them, 91% completion percentage, which is utterly insane for throwing that many times. 
He's on pace for five and a half thousand yards, 30 touchdowns. Like he's, he's murdering people right now. And you know, this, this whole John Gruden situation seems to not have affected him at all. He's dialed in. He's locked in as the leader of this franchise. Um, he's dealing and he put up 33 points without Darren Waller. Like he did, it wasn't like, it wasn't even trying. It was like, oh yeah, I'll just throw to Foster Moreau and Moreau's going to lead us in receiving and, and catch a really nice red zone ball. And like, they didn't care. Nothing changed for them. And that's how you know you have a good quarterback is when you lose Darren Waller and nothing changes. You're still productive. You're still putting up 30 plus points. You're still throwing for 320 yards and two touchdowns. Like Derek Carr is legit. This is the best he's ever played by a fair margin. And he's had some really good years in the past. I know he dipped a little while after the broken leg. And like, let's be honest, he kind of looked a little bit jumpy in the pocket for a little while there. Um, He's over that. He's accurate. He's got a great arm. Good decision maker. Derek Carr's the truth, man. And uh, I think I think the Raiders as an organization are thankful that they didn't panic too early and try to go get somebody else because that's these rumors have been swirling for a while that John Gruden wanted to move off of him. I think they're happy they didn't because John Gruden's gone now and Derek Carr's still there. And he is firmly in the MVP discussion, in my opinion. Yeah, I think they're thrilled they didn't. But there were definite strong wins for that for the last two years. Um, both times in the offseason that, hey, Carr might be available. And, and it was it was loud enough that there was some truth to that. I think they're exceptionally glad they didn't do that. Um, oh, I know because, for a fact it was true. Yeah. Like, it Yes. Again, it wasn't the entire building that wanted it to happen, but there were parts of the building that wanted it to happen. No, fully. I'm, I'm happy they got fully, over. Fully, fully <laughs> agree. Um, they're happy. Everybody's happy right now because not only is Carr playing his best football ever, but he's continuing to evolve right in front of us. And the semi-sad thing about this is most people, if they're not Raiders fans, are missing this. Even fans in that division are missing it because they're waiting for Mahomes to rebound and they're watching the Mahomes saga right now, which is what it is in Kansas City. It's a saga. He's pressing. He And it's fascinating television, right? But they're focused on Mahomes when they should turn their head and look at Derek Carr because he's playing his best football, but he's also not just to that level. He's passing it. And the thing, pun intended, uh, the <laughs> thing that is most interesting to me or that I've noticed is he's changed the way he throws the ball. And I swear to God, he looked at Russell Wilson tape in the offseason and said, you know, if I put some air under it, it'll be easier for my receivers to catch deep because all the way up to this point in his career, Derek Carr has been a drive-the-ball guy. And he's got a great arm, right? He is capable of driving the ball deep down the field, but he would do it hard and he would do it flat. And that is a difficult catch for receivers in some certain situations, especially contested. This year, first game, he lobs up a moon ball down the sideline for 35 yards, drops it right in the bucket, and I thought, whoa. We saw it live. That's not a throw (laughs) I've seen in his bag, right? That's new. I wonder if if that was just a one-time thing. Like, did it slip? (laughs) Right? Nope. He's pulled it out, not every week, but... At least five times this year, he has thrown a nice arcing ball down the seam, 
down the sideline over the defender and it just drops right into the receiver's hands and they look happy about it right they should be he is evolving he's adding things to his game so he's returned to the previous levels of highs in his careers in terms of accuracy decision making time to release the ball like you said he's solid in the pocket now he's not jumpy so he's solid mentally he's solid physically and he's added some tricks, right? He's added clubs to his bag if he's a golfer. And now he can hit that chip shot and drop it in the bucket. And he's doing it. He looks relaxed. It looks fun. And he's producing. The only thing I think would keep him out of MVP, you know, consideration if this continues is the 30 TDs. And I know that sounds ridiculous. But in the modern <laughs> era, like you can put up 50 and he's not putting up. He's putting up about two week it's 1.7 right that's not a three he's gonna need some three and four touchdown games in there to bump his touchdown numbers up 5500 is ridiculous that's just obscene well but let me see he, when they play the chiefs because he'll definitely get four against them yeah oh, what do you know it's in a couple weeks he'll be ding fine. ding yeah <laughs> and those are gonna be and again when those fans that are focusing on Mahomes ha- are presented with Derek Carr in front of them and he likely if things stay the way they are uh for another couple of weeks outplays Mahomes which is not a ludicrous thing to say even last year played him tough right had a very had a shootout had a duel where he went toe to toe with Mahomes and looked every bit the part. So we shouldn't be terribly surprised by this. But this year, I think it's going to be a different picture. Carr's going to be clearly on top entering that game and is going to have every chance to head to head really show out against his division rival and could be embarrass him if if current trends hold. Um, that would go a long ways with voters, uh, I think. But Carr, regardless of awards, is playing great football. He's leading his team. He's continuing to add tricks to his bag and get better at things that he wasn't really great at. He was good at. But those are the marks of a quarterback that's sort of in it for the long haul. And right now, I don't think I'd take... I don't think there's four quarterbacks in the league I would take over Carr right now. Dak, Herbert, Tom... Rodgers. I guess there's five. Allen. I would take Allen, too. And maybe Lamar, but... Yeah, Again, Lamar. We're talking, like, long-term, extra... like, yeah, I would well, say Well, I mean, just but right now like, with the way they're playing. So, yeah. you're right. There's five, but I would say, you know, Derek Carr is tickling the top five, which I don't think you could say in any previous full season. Full season being the key for Raiders fans there. This is not a Derek Carr hate-a-thon. This is, like you said, he's had tremendous bursts. The beginning half of last year, he looked like an MVP, right? First mm-hmm. six, seven games for the Raiders last year, they were blowing the doors off. Everybody was like, aha, the second coming. And then they completely fell apart in the second half of the year. And just prior to the leg injury, he had that amazing season as well where he was just dealing. He was just dialed in. Um, he's better than both of those times now. And if he sustains it, with this team and i hope he does i hope he stays healthy because it's fun like when the raiders are good and their quarterbacks bombing it out like that's the nfl right that's that's amazing the nfl is better when that's happening so i hope he stays healthy i hope he gets up around five thousand plus yards i hope he leads the raiders to a postseason berth because i just want to see him play more football right now because he's one of those guys is playing the best football in the league right now in about a month on thanksgiving we are getting Raiders-Cowboys. 
And I, I just looked at their schedule because I was like, oh, who do they got coming up? It's Giants, then Chiefs, then Bengals. Low-key, great game. Yeah. Uh, and then Raiders-Cowboys on Thanksgiving. Like, That's man, a good this, game. That's a good game. That's a good game because Dak under the pressure of their pass rush, which has also been at a new level. I mean, Max Crosby we talk about, but Ngakwe has uh, not even low-key, just key been good um, for them in adding another weapon. Like this is a this is a complete team. This is not the Derek Carr show where he's just showing out and again, like you said kind of earlier with Russ dragging a team along. Like his defense is contributing just as much and they're just kind of egging each other on on the sidelines. Did you see what I did? Yeah, did you see what I did? Yeah. <laughs> and that's fun. That's great. So, um really happy we got to see them to open the season, but really cool that they're just pushing it and going farther. Um again, it's good for the NFL. That's good football. You watch the Raiders right now, they're playing good football. You mentioned Max Crosby, and uh, he's actually one of the nominees for this week's bootleg <laughs> shot of the week. Before I'm all about we get segues to this week. I, I know. God, your it's, segues have been amazing. It's, it's the segues this week. I'm getting better. I'm evolving. <laughs> Look at us being uh, competent podcasters for once. Um, before we get to those nominees, though, I do want to give a toast to last week's winner by popular vote. You folks in the comments, Randy Gregory, um, annihilating. There's really no other word to use, but annihilating Mac Jones, forcing the fumble. One of the one of the most vicious sacks I think we've seen this year. Legal, by the, the way, not dirty. No, but and one of the vicious. fastest. Uh, I think it was the yes. fourth fastest time to a sack in the league this year. So Gregory shot out of a cannon, landed right in Mac Jones's best bread basket, and uh, that that had to hurt like. It was legal, but he got up slow though. He got up real slow. I I bet he got the full force of that one. So you don't see that very often with the quarterback protection rules. You don't see guys getting unloaded on regularly and he got unloaded on. So cheers to you, Randy. Uh, Hell of a sack. Oh man. Mm. I'm going to drink mine in two sips because man, that stuff is so good. You almost don't want to waste it in one shot. After doing something that's, was it 117 proof? Like, that's nothing. Like, that tastes just, that's like agave syrup to me. No no heat. Nothing. <laughs> oh, I forgot to tell you. It's not, I can't have it on this podcast. I teased it last podcast. I said I had a project. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What are you doing? Oh, oh yeah. What are you doing? This is right up your alley. You'll love this. So, I can't have it on this week's podcast because it needs four more days. It takes 10 days. So uh, my friend Ross Reed in Chicago has done this for a couple of years. He found this recipe where you infuse alcohol. The original recipe was with Jameson's, but he moved on to Tullamore Dew. And this year he said, I want to do bourbon. And the recipe is bottle of your favorite alcohol in that class. Uh, Cut up apples that basically fill uh, about two thirds of the liquid, three cinnamon sticks, And then he put, uh, in the most recent version, a little bit of simple syrup. Like, uh, I think he said two ounce and a half shots of simple syrup just to sweeten it up so you could could have it straight by itself. And uh, Ross and I go back and forth about a bunch of things. And I said, I think pure Vermont maple syrup, like some of the stuff we gave you, would be better than simple syrup. And he was like, oh, damn, that sounds good. And he's like, you should try it. And I was like, okay. So a couple of days later, I was at the store. Picked up a bottle of Redemption Bourbon, which was my bootleg shot of the week last week. Just took one shot out and put the rest of the bottle in a big jar. 
Uh, it ended up taking two Honeycrisp apples for me because it's Washington and we have massive Honeycrisp apples. I think Ross said he used four and I cut up two and I was like, I can't fit four in the jar. I'm just going to put two. <laughs> so three hard cinnamon sticks. Uh, and then I put um, just over an ounce, like an ounce and a quarter of straight Vermont maple syrup. And you swirl it every, so you just put the apples in there, pour the booze over, put the cinnamon on the bottom, uh, pour in the maple syrup, plug it up with an airtight jar, and you swirl it once a day, and you wait 10 days. And then I'm going to have to strain it because it's got, you know, little bits of cinnamon, little bits of apple in it. But all the apples are soaked and submerged now. And you get apple cinnamon infused, in this case, bourbon. And it is just like the most fall sounding thing ever. Now, I've never had it. Um, but I was just swirling it today and it's starting to get, it, it looks crazily enough right now. It looks like really good unfiltered apple cider, like that dark brown. Oh yeah, dude. And there's was, no way that's bad. There's zero no, chance. That's, that's what bad. Ross said. He's like, he took one look at it. I was, cause I was joking with him about the apples and, uh, he said in 10 days, that's going to be amazing. And I, I actually had forgotten when I put it in, I've been swirling it every day and I was like, man, how many more days do I have? So I looked it up cause I had posted the original on Twitter and I think today was day six. So I have four more days. So like this weekend, I'll be able to strain it, um, you know, probably put it through a metal strainer and then a cheesecloth. And then next week, I'll be able to have a shot of that. I mean, I'll definitely have some this weekend uh, just to try it, of course, for science. But uh, next week. shit. Yeah, I'm excited. I was like, this is a bread thing. I'm doing a bread thing. I'm infusing alcohol. Oh, this is cool. Man. So you I'm know excited. What I, you know what I would do? What if, would you if do? Money, if money was no object. <laughs> <laughs> you take uh some of that angel's envy caribbean mm, cast rye mm, and you mm, do it with that mm. dude yes money would dude. have to be no object i don't know that i would do that though because i like that so much so for those of you that haven't had it angel's envy great stuff by itself but the caribbean cask is rum cast adds a sweetness starts with a rye so you get that little bit of rye bite to it mixed with the sweetness of the cask it's just, it's super complex in a great way. It plays off each other extremely well. A little bit like the Raiders offense and defense. Oh, Segway City. Anyways, <laughs> uh, no, but oh, I don't God know that it. I would do that. Like, just because I love the base so much. Like, Redemption I've had, and it's good. Like, it's good solid bourbon. Like, nothing against Redemption. But I was like, I don't mind if this comes out some way I don't particularly like. Because Redemption's average like 30 bucks a bottle. It's it's good stuff yeah it's, it's it's good it's fine and it's great by itself but like i wouldn't be destroyed if it didn't come out good if that didn't come out good <laughs> oh i'd be very sad i'd be very sad <laughs> i would I'd be very sad so but it'll be super fun i'll have it on the podcast next week i'll make that my shot of the week but i'm it's it's a project right up your alley so i figured i'd share it oh i'm so fucking jealous you have no idea i will send oh you a picture God, and make amazing. you even more jealous because it's looking really good i'm i'm literally gonna go to the store and get the stuff to do one tomorrow <laughs> because <laughs> that sounds amazing uh let's get to these nominees though because i'm sure the folks have been waiting long enough uh nominee number one demario davis taking uh, this is from the game last night we're recording this on tuesday night uh taking the center for the seahawks and just throwing him into alex collins face I- again he wasn't necessarily blowing up alex collins but he definitely blew up that center and uh it kind of showed that demario davis is now in the stage of his career where he's got that old man strength where like the laws of physics no longer apply to him. And that was a hell of a play by him. He was a man possessed in that Monday night game. Like Lewis Riddick put out a tweet that I ended up retweeting 
uh, talking about their stars at other positions besides quarterback. And Demario Davis has been, I don't even say a low-key favorite of us. He's that guy that's right on the cusp of being in the top tier, out of the top tier of, uh, just out of the top tier of inside linebackers, depending on what you value. But he is a, he is a great player against the run. He was a good player against the pass last night, made some very good plays, but he just massacred the Seahawks all night long. And so I said, tomorrow Davis just wrecked the Seahawks all night long. And sure enough, the sixth like on that tweet was the Demario Davis, who apparently was searching his name on Twitter and was like, ding. And I was like, ooh, glad I didn't kill him. But that play in particular, I am always a sucker for any defender taking an offensive lineman and using him as a weapon to stop a running back. And that is exactly what happened. He folded over. Uh, and this is the weird thing is the center for the Seahawks name is Kyle Fuller, which every time I hear it, I'm like, what? It doesn't sound right, but I know. But yeah. anyways, he took Kyle Fuller and just Alex Collins was like, ah, and got hit with Kyle Fuller and fell over backwards. So tomorrow Davis uh, showing that old man strength and just destroyed the Seahawks all night long. He was super physical. I wonder how much of it in that particular game. And I thought about this is him playing across from one of the guys that's considered the greatest of this era at middle linebacker and Bobby Wagner and be like, Oh, you you're Bobby Wagner. I'll show you Bobby Wagner. Like, <laughs> and he, yeah, was more like, uh, I deserve one of these all pros that you've gotten for five straight years, sir. Yeah. yeah he had a great game. Great game. Speaking of all pro, somebody who's well on their way to being first team all pro this year, Max Crosby, Again, segues just on point tonight. Um, doing his best uh, Troy Palamalu impersonation, jumping over the offensive line and getting a tackle for loss on the goal line. What more can you say about this dude? Every single week, he just makes an insane play. An absolutely insane play. I, like, early favorite for Defensive Player of the Year for me because he does shit like this that just guys his size don't do. They're not supposed to be able to do it. And, and he does it, and he makes it look effortless. Yeah, he feels a bit like me, uh, to me, like Derek Carr on offense, right? Here's a guy that had a game when he came out of college. He's continued to work. He's continued to evolve. And this year, he's just doing it all. He's doing speed. He's doing power. He's jumping over the line now and grabbing running backs and tearing them backwards. Um, he's stacking guys up with long-arm moves. He's doing chopping speed to the outside, like – there just isn't a thing that he's not doing at, I would say, almost the highest level. Like, I haven't seen a great spin out of him, but if that's your biggest complaint, like, <laughs> he's winning every other way. He doesn't need a spin. Um, they're just, again, he's filled in all the holes in his game. He's playing at the top level of any defensive end in football right now, and it's just fun to watch. He, Like you said, he does something every week. Uh, option number three this week i i love throwing offensive linemen into this segment just because we got to give them some credit for physicality my guy jackson carmen who i defended that pick furiously you did all over bengal's I, twitter i didn't like it but you did so you deserve this one jackson i was on the jackson carmen train of like look this can work they're gonna put him at guard it'll be fine i promise and he's our nominee this week among offensive linemen for just demolishing some poor Ravens defensive lineman. I didn't catch the number, um, but he he drove him back like literally eight yards off the line of scrimmage on that Samaj P. Ryan touchdown run and then just buried his ass on the finish. 
Uh, it's just offensive line porn, man. And anytime we get good offensive line porn, we got to throw it in the shot of the week because uh, we don't get it all the time. No, because otherwise Brandon's going to tell on us. Like Brandon Thorne will <laughs> not come on the podcast again. No, uh, we love good offensive line play. It is the core of of good offenses, period. Um, and, you know, we just talked about the Raiders. We talked about Carr, and then we talked about Crosby. And the offensive line play for the Raiders is low-key gotten better, like, every week, and it's powering their success. The same thing with Jackson Carmen and the Bengals line. We have <laughs> we have given the Bengals line plenty of shit. It got, you know, Joe Burrow knocked out of the league last year. We were not fans. Uh, they made a couple of moves. Again, Brett was uh, is stronger in their corner for the amount of, of effort and resource they'd put there. I was a little bit on the negative side. Carmen was the, was the key piece in that upgrade. Um, but they, too, as a line are starting to play better every week. And, you know, obviously if they didn't, they wouldn't have destroyed the Ravens. Like, you don't destroy the Ravens with an uh, an underperforming offensive line. Ravens' defensive line is going to eat that. There's no way that you hang 40-plus on the Ravens with an underperforming offensive line. So the Bengals' line is starting to come together. Um, and Carmen, great play here, just bulldozing his one-on-one assignment for this particular run, which turned into a touchdown. So. He's not perfect. I'm not saying that he's like, no, a, a, he's a rookie. You know, but, you know, when rookies make good plays, we'll celebrate. And it just shows that he can do it. I've seen it once. I can see it again. <laughs> the the siren it. song of all NFL coaches ever. I've seen it once. You can do it again. <laughs> Uh, option number four, our final nominee for this week. Uh, this one was just fun. Uh, Kenny Moore upending Brandon Ayuk, uh, like literally flipping him end over end. And when it first happened, I was like, oh, God, please don't be hurt because it looked like one of those hits that could like very easily cause an injury. But luckily, Ayuk popped right up. But it was just a great hit from Kenny Moore. Got low, used leverage and uh, the power of physics in his favor. And you know, I mean, that, that Colts defense is just so, so, so physical, including at the DB position. And uh, Kenny Moore is another example of that. Yeah, it's I the one thing I like is guys have gotten smarter about this over time, which is they see those hits coming. And for the most part, they get their cleats out of the turf which a lot of times ends up with them spinning like tops in the air because they're not grounded anymore, right? They don't have an anchor point. But it also means their knee doesn't get folded backwards or their ankle doesn't get bent over sideways or whatever else. So you see these guys who are running into those hits high-low and they'll like pull their feet up right before they get hit. And yeah, they end up spinning because of it, but their legs get saved. Um, and this was one of those where I kind of saw it coming pulled his legs up just a little bit before Moore hit him. And that many was unanchored and sure enough, physics flipped him over. But uh, that Colts defense starting around in form is unfortunate to see the injury to their safety, who we really liked. Um, yeah. Blackman tore his yeah, Achilles this Blackman's week, out know. for the year. That's not cool. Uh, he was one of our favorite players. We highlighted him a lot last year. Uh, came on really strong. So hopefully he returns from injury really quickly and, and heals well. Uh, but the rest of that Colts defense is kind of, I think, rallying off the offense's success and saying, okay, like we're going to get back to being really good. Darius Leonard had a great game this week. Um, fun to see. And yeah, again, 
Um, shots of the week. We don't want to see anybody get injured. We don't want to see illegal hits. We don't want to see late hits for concussions or, or really hits that were flagged. We want to see good, straight, powerful NFL clean hits that, ooh, yeah, it sure didn't look like it felt good, but that is within the rules and that's part of the game, and that's that's what we're trying to promote there. Let's get to the uh, Week 8 watch list now to round out this show. These are a few of our favorite games that we're looking forward to this week. Uh, first up is whatever's left of the Green Bay Packers going against the Arizona Cardinals. They've had a little bit of a COVID outbreak in uh, Green Bay this week. And let's see, this is going out Wednesday, so I think they're traveling this morning, technically. Uh, but they've been in strict COVID protocols for the last couple of days now. Devontae Adams is out. Alan Lazard is out. whole host of people are out. Uh, Randall Cobb is probably going to get a billion targets in this game. And they're going up against a buzzsaw in the Arizona Cardinals. So can't wait to watch that one on Thursday night. Because if anybody can take an undermanned team and still knock off the last unbeaten club in the league, it's probably Aaron Rodgers. And then we got uh, Dallas and Minnesota both coming off bye weeks, which is what's fascinating to me, is we're going to get to see both of these teams off two weeks of rest, two weeks of preparation going against each other. Very explosive offenses matching up and uh, also two, I think, underrated defenses matching up. Minnesota started out a little shaky and they've gotten a lot better as the season has gone on. And the Cowboys just generate a shitload of turnovers. So that's going to be fun to watch Kirk Cousins try to avoid uh, Trayvon Diggs (laughs) in the secondary. And then uh, we got New England and the Chargers, who last year New England absolutely annihilated the Chargers. And this year, I think the Chargers are going to try to get their revenge after just getting annihilated by the Ravens. But they have two full weeks to prepare for this game because they were on a bye week as well. And this year's Chargers, in my opinion, are not last year's Chargers. It's a much better coached team, a much more explosive team, believe it or not. And uh, it's going to be a really, really interesting matchup because it's going to basically be New England's run game versus Justin Herbert. That's what this really boils down to. So three just fascinating matchups to me with a bunch of teams that are coming off buys and uh, the last unbeaten trying to stay unbeaten against one of the best quarterbacks ever. Yeah. Pat's chargers will start at the, at the bottom. Like we thought the chargers were going to be up here this year uh, and that the Pats were going to be a little bit down that even just a month ago, we probably would have said that this game is much more even right. Chargers come in on a little bit of a stumble The Pats come in on a little bit of a roll. We both still think the Chargers are probably a more talented team, but will that show up on the field or is that just on paper? Like, that's why that's an interesting game. Feels like Kirk Cousins lights off, I don't know, three, four games a year. Um, There was a a guy that used to play for the Detroit Pistons, uh, Vinny Johnson, and his nickname was The Microwave because he was super streaky, but when he heated up, it was instant. (laughs) And I swear that Kirk Cousins is the second coming of Vinny Johnson, The Microwave, because he has a couple of those games a year where he's, he's a streaky quarterback. And when he gets on, he can beat almost anybody. And it happens three or four times a year where you look down and it's like, Kirk Cousins had 482 yards. Like what in the world? And you never know when that week's going to be. And if it happens to be against that Cowboys defense, that'll be a really fun game. Now, if it's one of the cold weeks for Kirk Cousins and he plays a little bit more average, maybe tosses up a couple of turnovers to Diggs, it'll be Less interesting as a matchup, but boy, if Cousins comes into that one hot, which you can't tell, 
coming off a bye. It's going to be a fascinating matchup. And Packers-Cardinals is just, look, you've got two top teams in the NFC. They're running into each other. What's going to give, right? Are the Cardinals going to continue to roll? Are the Is Aaron Rodgers going to do his Aaron Rodgers thing? Uh, just to, I'd say that's the prime watch of the week, regardless of the COVID outbreak. Bears have a little bit of that too. Nagy just got tested COVID positive. Um, and they've had several players uh, from the offensive line on it. So maybe it's maybe it's just running through the Midwest. Anyways, best wishes to all those folks. But uh, regardless, Packers-Cardinals, fascinating watch. Two of the best teams in the NFL, locking horns. That's always good TV. And the good thing for the Packers, or at least Packers fans, is they're kind of playing with house money here. Because if they lose, it's like, well, we didn't have Devontae. We didn't have Lazar. Like, you know, we're yeah, we're supposed to lose. But if they win. <laughs> but if they win. They're feeling great. So yeah, it's kind of a, sure. a win-win scenario for Packers fans. Like, you know, they get to kind of watch this game in peace because who cares if they lose? They're supposed to lose, right? So it's uh, it's going to be a fun week of football. Hopefully a lot more fun than week seven was because I, I can't take that many I think more again. good games this week. We, we went yeah. into last week saying not a lot of great games. We got a lot of blowouts and a couple of good games, which is about what we expected. This week feels a little bit more even-keeled to me. Uh, before I get out of here, you got anything to plug for uh, Bears Over Beers? Uh, Bears Over Beers, we'll have our 49ers preview because that is the Bears' next opponent. But uh, we've been on a bit of a streak at Bears Over Beers. In the first uh, six, seven weeks of the season, we had Jordan Rodriguez, We had Ted Wen. Uh, we just had Trevor Sikama previewing the Bucks. Um, bunch of talent. Uh, we had Math Bomb on, uh, creator of... Uh, relative athletic score uh preview in detroit because he's a detroit fan so we've had a we've had a pretty tasty run of guests on bears over beers we're producing some pretty good content so i'm i'm happy about it what do you have coming up for film room i know you're working on one uh it's coming out thursday morning it's the longest film room i have ever put out I, I shot on location in cleveland oh. it's like 40 minutes long i swear to god it's a monster. I have an editor okay. helping me out who's doing all these crazy animations. And I, again, I shot on location in Cleveland. I'm going through all the, you know, the Cardinals offensive tendencies. And then, you know, some things that the Browns defense did against the Cardinals where, you know, we kind of throw at the 37 points on the board thing. But they also only average 5.1 yards per play, which is literally Detroit Lions territory. So the Browns did do some good things defensively that I think some teams can learn from. And I, I talk about, you know, run fits out of quarters it's a long long episode that also has some fun uh content from cleveland which is a great city by the way people give cleveland a lot of shit and they need to stop it because cleveland's awesome i had a great time there so uh that's coming out this week and then uh i think my my caesars project is coming out pretty soon too so lots coming out on film room but thank you everybody for watching thank you to our executive producers marat and Consti. Consti, by the way, shout out. He he was um, the one person who was able to make the uh, patron only, uh, you know, chat that we had last Saturday. And so it was literally just me and EJ and Consti chopping it up for an hour and a half. And it was awesome. If you guys want to come to the next one, anybody in the top two levels of Patreon can come by and say hi and chat with us. Uh, and if nobody else uh, can come, you basically get us one on one for an hour and a half. So uh, thank you to Consti for stopping by for that. Thank you to everybody for watching. Um, other than that, uh, hope you all have a good week of football. Uh, again, ideally, it's better than last week, but uh, 
Until then, we'll see you guys next week. Take care.